Space has always been a subject of fascination since the dawn of man. We, like our ancestors, can't help but gaze upward in wonder and awe at the limitless beauty. With all the potential and endless possibilities, it seems an obvious subject for film. Such great lore in cinema can be found involving space. Whether you're venturing to a galaxy far, far away, or to infinity and beyond, there's bound to be a tale for you. Today, however, I want to talk to you about a film that deals with space in its own way. One that looks outward towards the stars, and also inward at the soul. A film about an approaching foreign planet, and one that introduced me to a modern powerhouse of cinema. So if you're like me, and you enjoy film and the emotions and impact that it can convey, then grab a glass of your preferred liquid and join me for the next little while. For me, that's a glass of Pinot Noir from our friends at Barefoot Winery. So sit back, relax, and let's talk about the love of film. Welcome to Glazed Cinema. prior to 2011 were quite informative for me as a film lover. I had built up a Rolodex of directors whose work I admired and was seeking more and more. Like a red giant swallowing up its planets, I saw an increasing number of films adding to my collection. And it wasn't until the 11th year of the millennium that I got to etch another director's name onto that list, one that I had heard lots about from the great country of Denmark. I remember seeing the poster for the very first time, and it really intrigued me. It was Kirsten Dunst, lying in water with greenery floating on either side. She was wearing a wedding dress, her veil floating above her head, gazing at me. Her hands clutched a bouquet of green leaves and baby's breath. I remember that I was quite taken aback by the image, wondering why a bride would be floating in what looked like creek water. The name of the film, which was below her hands, read... Melancholia, and below that, directed by Lars von Trier. Now I knew Kirsten Dunst from other films like the Spider-Man trilogy, The Virgin Suicides, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. As a sidebar, I've always liked Kirsten Dunst. I think for a while there she was cast as a certain archetype, but her range of acting is quite expansive, and I think she really shines in her roles, especially in her more indie exploits. Her characters feel very real to me, and three-dimensional, oftentimes stealing scenes. However, I had not seen any films from the director. And at that time, unbeknownst to me, Von Trier had already made a name for himself in cinema, having won several awards internationally. The only film of his that I had heard of at the time was highly recommended to me by a friend, which was Dancer in the Dark. So, having heard many great things, I decided to tune in to Melancholia. I remember exactly where I was when I saw this film. I was home alone as my parents were out of town for the week, and I had a few films on the docket, including today's subject. 
I rented it off of what at the time was Time Warner Cable, and I had a pizza all ready to go too. I didn't know what to expect, but what I was greeted with exceeded all my expectations. The first sequence is a slow motion account of specific events throughout the film, told in hauntingly beautiful imagery. Every time I watch this movie, I'm transfixed by this initial sequence. Before I get into too much more though, let me give you a brief rundown of the plot. Melancholia is about a family dealing with two events at the same time. The first event being a wedding, and the second being a major celestial event. The film hosts an impressive cast including Kirsten Dunst, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Kiefer Sutherland, John Hurt, and Stellan Skarsgård. Melancholia was received well when initially released, and was reviewed positively by critics. It was met with controversy at Cannes, however, after Lars himself made some unacceptable comments during a press conference. This led to a seven-year ban from him appearing at the Cannes Film Festival, something that has only just been lifted. This most certainly tarnished the film during award season, as it should have been nominated for much more. The cinematography and acting deserved far more, at the very least, in the form of nominations, but I digress. The film itself is told in two parts, and each part centers around one of two sisters. Though related by blood, neither sister resembles the either in either physique, mindset, or personality. The two parts are aptly named after both sisters, and each one plays like the title sister's personality. Now you're probably wondering what this major celestial event is that I've been dancing around the whole time. Well, to put it simply, the event is the title of the film. Melancholia is a planet which is on a rogue trajectory and will pass by the Earth at a fairly close proximity to where it will be bigger and brighter than the moon in the Earth's sky. There are several different feelings about this event as it approaches closer. Each character's feelings about this event change as the film plays out. For instance, Justine is quite curious and welcoming, acting quite laid back about it. Claire is tense and always on guard towards it. John, Claire's husband, is excited and marveled, constantly breaking out his telescope to get the best views with their son. I don't think we ever learn what John does for a living, but we can piece together that he loves science and space, and that he makes a lot of money. Played by Kiefer Sutherland, he has a top-of-the-line telescope and talks about three things throughout the film. Money, his dislike for his wife Claire's family, and melancholia. If he's not complaining about how much money he's spending, he's gloating about how much he can afford to spend. Despite all this, we can tell that he is in love with Claire and helps her in any facet to help make her happy, including helping ease her worries about the tidal planet. Melancholia is a bright, cyan-hued planet that has been hidden behind the sun somewhere in the universe. As it gets closer and closer, its size and beauty grow, forcing each character to confront its presence and meaning. The planet itself is a gas giant, much like our Jupiter, though smaller in size. I love the scenes where the planet makes an appearance, as the effects are quite spellbinding. Without saying much more regarding what happens with the plot, I do want to talk about the aesthetics of the film. Melancholia is without question a Lars von Trier film. His stamp can be felt throughout and reminds me of some of his other films, namely Antichrist, which I suppose makes sense since they were made back to back with Antichrist coming out two years prior. 
This initial half, titled Justine, centers around Justine, played by Kirsten Dunst, who suffers from crippling depression, anxiety, and mood swings. This initial half is a kind of tumultuous experience. Things happen in quick cuts and feels chaotic at times, which helps represent the inner turmoil of Justine's mind. Through her wedding and the interactions of those around her, we learn a lot about Justine and her family. We see her care, joy, impulsiveness, heartbreak, and resentment all unfurl in different ways throughout her wedding reception. Her friends and family, an array of characters, all exude quite hectic and opposing personalities. Justine, in the middle of it all, is seemingly just trying to stay afloat. She starts out happy as we join her and her new husband in a limo. The driver is trying to maneuver the elongated vehicle through a turn in a road. On one side is a mossy rock face, and on the other side a forest with stone stumps lining the roadway. With the sun bouncing off the white paint, he tries to maneuver the car. With little success, the new husband, Michael, gets out to help along with Justine. Taking turns behind the wheel, they each try to navigate the vehicle without hitting the trees on the other side. After a quick cut, it is late, and we are now in front of a large, beautiful castle. We meet Claire and her husband, John. Commenting on their tardiness, the group walks across the asphalt towards the breathtaking building. Before entering the stone archway, Justine stops to look skyward and asks, What star is that? After a bit of discussion, John comes to lend his expertise and asks, Which one are you looking at exactly? Justine retorts, The red one. John, observing the object in question, says, I'm amazed you can see that. That's Antares. It's the main star in the Scorpio constellation. Sharing a glance, John smiles as they turn to walk inward, unknowingly bearing witness to what will consume them for the remainder of the film. Now, if you're new to this podcast, you should know that I strive to be a spoiler-free program. The reason behind that is simple. If I tell you how something ends, the journey is over. You're almost limited to my opinion and understanding, my experience. That just shouldn't be. I want you to have your own experience and opportunity to inflect your own opinion or understanding when it comes to art. I just hope I can inspire you to press play. The reason I say that is that this film is quite unique. Unique in the fact that the ending isn't really the point of the movie. After all, if you've seen the beginning, then you've already seen the end. Having said that, I will not spoil the end nor the journey to it. If you're unfamiliar with Von Trier's films, I can tell you this. His films reside in an uncomfortable place, confronting our psyche and emotions through storylines that put us between a rock and a hard place. He's a true artist. Another thing that I like about his films is that each one features a strong female in the leading role. Melancholia is no different. Von Trier made this film to mirror his own battle with depression and anxiety which he exudes through the main character, Justine. The end result is quite an affecting experience wherein we, the audience, partake in it all. Of course, the best way to showcase something is to have a variable of it. Justine's sister, Claire, is that variable. The second part, titled Claire, centers around Justine's sister, played by Charlotte Gainsbourg. This half revolves around the major celestial event and how her family copes with it. 
It is much more linear and helps to illustrate the grounded, steady, and logical nature of Claire. This part begins after the wedding, and we see Claire get a call from Justine, who is in the middle of an episode of depression. Claire seems worried and is verbally helping her get into a cab to come see her over the phone. When the cab does arrive, we see a rather broken down Justine exit the cab. She can hardly move, her hair down across her face. Claire helps her get into the house as John begrudgingly pays the cab driver. We see Claire care for her sister in many ways. She helps her into bed and helps her feel safe, makes her a bath and get into that bath. She also makes meatloaf, which is her favorite meal, explaining to John, if this doesn't get her out of bed, nothing will. We can see that even though she has a hard time understanding Justine, that she truly loves her sister. I don't want to give away too much here. As I said, it's a hard movie to talk about without spoiling anything by way of story. I think it is important to discover both characters' journeys through these two halves and put yourself there. There are many scenes that I enjoy within this film, but none other than when Claire and John are outside waiting for Melancholia to rise over the horizon. It's very dark outside, and we see the long green lawn which overlooks a large body of water. John turns to Claire, stating, Leo should be watching this. Justine then descends the steps in a kind of nightgown to the stone plateau to join them. John peers through his telescope as Justine meets the last step and sits down, planting herself close to her sister Claire. John looks up from the eyepiece in awe as the camera pans to Claire's face, looking on in disbelief. Soon, we hear the brooding friction and shaking of the earth as glassware rattles around. John slowly walks forward, his breathing heavier and more labored as the brightness grows. The camera cuts to the yard once again, this time showing Melancholia cresting over the horizon and reflecting on the water below. Though only an eighth is showing, it appears absolutely massive, easily ten times as big as the moon. Birds start chirping as the planet continually rises, showing more of its cyan blue brilliance. The camera moves to each character's faces as John has Claire look through the telescope. Within the eyepiece now, we see a vibrant blue and white clouds spread intermittently across the surface, the brooding sound still in the background. The camera cuts to Justine, who is looking on with a slight grin as John asks Claire, Are you afraid? To which Claire states, No, it looks... it looks friendly. Before the scene ends, we see melancholia in the sky, all of it visible now. A magnificent sight, indeed. I love that scene. It's the first time we see not only the planet, but everyone's reactions to it. There's a lot to love here, but the sound of the planet is quite eye-opening as well. The sounds of this film are also quite awesome. The score, like the rest of this film, is untraditional but present. To fit the mood of the film, Lars chose a piece from Wagner, which feels quite appropriate. Titled Tristan and Isolde, the piece has depth and drama that just melds wonderfully throughout. Most of this film contains no music at all. In fact, the only other songs that are heard are during some of the wedding sequences where people are dancing. Lars uses excerpts from Tristan and Isolde brilliantly, though, 
dressing plot-altering scenes to create a bit more emotion. Apart from these bits of music, the rest of Melancholia is just sounds of the earth, whether that be people talking, birds chirping, insects buzzing, or water flowing. Something that just makes us feel closer to the planet, where at times we feel a bit removed from it. This film impacted me in a lot of ways. This might sound odd, but the first time I watched this, my living room seemed to shrink. When the film ended and flashed to black, I looked around almost sobering up to the fact that I was at home. I felt a range of emotions, but I really appreciate how Lars made depression tangible. It reaches out and makes contact with you, forcing you to feel, see, and relate to it. The fact that a director can make a film about a particular emotion and state of mind they are dealing with and embody it through the finished product is quite exquisite. I usually come away with an internal struggle, feeling inspired, sad, oddly comforted, and amazed by the entire experience. This film takes a lot of weighted risks as well. The biggest of all is starting with the end and ending with the beginning. It's a brilliant risk though, because we as an audience essentially must give ourselves to the film that much more. As I said earlier, my experience is not the be-all end-all, and you may find something completely different after watching. However, I feel as though because we are surrendering our expectations at the beginning, that everything afterwards feels just a bit more amplified. This is delivered in a major way by the actresses and actors and their deliveries. Every scene, sequence, and emotion feels very authentic. The acting is brilliant from all fronts, but Kirsten Dunst does a phenomenal job here. In fact, she took home the Best Actress Award at the Cannes Film Festival for her amazing portrayal of Justine. I really enjoyed watching her character throughout, and her scenes with Charlotte Gainsbourg are pretty amazing as well, as they both feed off of each other. Justine is among the best performances of Kirsten's career, if not the best, at least in the film medium. I can't say enough great things about it. After I watched Melancholia, I went out and saw two more of Von Trier's films in very quick succession. Though I like many of his films, I still hold Melancholia in high regard, and it is my personal favorite of his films, though admittedly, I have not seen them all. So whether you're out for an interesting and compelling film, or just looking for an introduction to Von Trier, this may be the film for you. I highly recommend giving it a watch to experience it from start to finish. I don't think you'll be disappointed. If you'd like to watch Melancholia for yourself, you can find it on Hulu. Hulu has different pricing structures, including Basic for $5.99 per month, with other plans for each person's needs. Apart from Hulu, you can also find it on Prime Video. If you have a Prime membership, you can watch Melancholia at no extra cost. Other services where Melancholia can be found include Vudu, Pluto TV, and Tubi if you subscribe to those services. You can also find it on YouTube, Google Play, or iTunes for rent at either $2.99 or $3.99. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Brian Kinney, with music by Kevin McLeod. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, please feel free to visit our website at glazedcinema.com. There, you'll find some background on the show and a place to submit ideas for future episodes. For film fans who are hearing impaired, the blog page on our website features each episode in written form as well. If you like this podcast, tell your friends or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Each week, 
there will be new content, including hints about episodes before they air. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope to see you next time with a beverage and another fine film on Glazed Cinema 